0: I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm alright. How you doing? I'm doing well. Did you fall into bed with as many as four women following your uh, big victory in an MMA fight over the weekend?
1: No, but in fairness, I also did not visit Salt Lake City, where that kind of thing, I am led to believe,
0: is a little more accepted. I believe the actual nickname of the city of salt lake city is group sex right like that's what it says on the i think that's the uno- like unofficial a, a, nickname you drive into salt lake city and it says on the sign welcome to salt lake city group sex exclamation point
1: well i mean they sell alcohol with like half of it cut out of the beer so they got to do something for fun around there
0: got to get your kick somehow salt lake city that's right be right? in bed by
1: 9 p.m though
0: well not if you went to this ufc event <laughs> no 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 <laughs> Well, Ben, this week's co-main event podcast is once again brought to you by Fulton & Rourke. Fulton & Rourke is a men's grooming company that creates products built for the way men operate. Their solid cologne smells great and comes in a handy, durable, refillable metal container. So it goes everywhere you go and it won't let you down. It's August. It's hot outside. Don't be afraid to let Fulton and Rourke give you a little assist in the fragrance department. You and everyone around you will be thankful for it. That's right, Chad.
1: For these long, hot, late summer months, Fulton and Rourke suggest their cologne, Tybee. It's fresh, clean, and perfect for this time of year. The highly concentrated, wax-based colognes are long-lasting and steady-wearing. You don't like the Tybee, you can check out the Cool Water, the Shackleford, or any of Fulton and Rourke's other fine fragrances.
0: You know what I noticed they still have up on the website today. What's that? Escalade still there. You haven't missed out on your opportunity. It doesn't stop there, though. Due to our ongoing association with Fulton and Rourke, we've gotten a chance to try almost all their products. And at this point, I can personally vouch for all of them. The bar soap we talk about all the time. The face wash is dope. I actually need to re-up on the face wash. You
1: right do. Now. I was going to say something. Looking
0: a little grungy. Yeah. A little grungy, A little ragged. And the aftershave cloths are great, too. I, re- I recommend all that stuff for keeping yourself correct this summer. Right now, CME
1: listeners can cash in on a special offer. Just go to Fulton and Rourke, that's R-O-A-R-K.com, and use the code CME at checkout to receive 15% off your total purchase. That's FultonandRourke.com.
0: The people got to know how to spell Rourke by now, I would think. Well, right? maybe
1: some people are just now getting hip to the Co Main Event Podcast. Somebody just
0: pulled their coat to it? You wouldn't think it happens, but people tell me it does. Welcome to all the new listeners of the Co Main Event Podcast. Two more days as of this recording to get your Dundasso shirts and hoodies before the third run ends over at Cotton Bureau. As you guys know, once the sale is over, these designs go away, and they only come back if a bunch of people write Cotton Bureau to request them. I would say at this point that if you haven't bought one, you're pushing your luck, but you guys have already astonished me with your appetite for the Dundasso shirts. so who knows? Maybe they will come back again and again, making me appear to be a liar and a charlatan. A
1: lying son of a bitch. Every single time. That's what you are.
0: Did you write your review for Champion of the World yet? Over there on Amazon or iTunes or wherever you buy your books? If you haven't and you liked the book, which I wrote, again, if you're just a new listener to the co-main event podcast, give me a good review. Give me a review over there on one of these websites where you buy your books.
1: I suggest, I'm going to say honest review. Give him an honest review.
0: Honest but positive. Don't
1: pull any punches.
0: Or pull a few punches if that's... If just the, let him have it. If it strikes you. <laughs> Three rounds as usual this week in the co-main event podcast. In round number one, sure, Yair Rodriguez looks pretty sitting at the front desk. But can he type? And in round number two, Taruto! Yay! Taruto? Taruto. And in round number three, Conor McGregor versus the WWE. Who are the bigger jerks? All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. You know, we, we try to get Sir Nigel. We did. Offer this episode of the co Event Podcast. It's been a couple of weeks since we did Master Tweet Theater, but my understanding is he's on assignment. Or something. He went over there to uh, Seattle for a wedding.
1: Or he might be dead. For all we know, he could be dead by now.
0: I mean, with Sir Nigel, you got it's basically a 50-50. There's so
1: many people out there that want to kill the man.
0: First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Bishop Davis, a member of the clergy. I <laughs> okay. He writes... I'm starting to feel that the belt system is just all wrong for the continued growth and popularity of our sport as it seems to discredit the actual, quote, cream of the crop, end quote, mentality usually associated with, quote, champions, end quote, in sports. Don't you guys think MMA would be better served with an annual or biannual Grand Prix or just anything else besides the belt? At this point, it seems to have lost all its validity, please, discourse. You know, I would not.
1: I'm not going to sit here and argue against the idea of an annual grand prix. Right, that's see
0: that's the good part of what's happening here. Yeah. That's the positive uh uh suggestion part of the Bishop Bishop Davis listener mail. Like I think actually think that's a sweet idea.
1: But here's the problem I think. Okay, if we do away with the belt and it's just like so and so is the whatever 2016 grand prix winner. There is no like just existing light heavyweight champion or whatever throughout the year. Then what are we really doing with these fights? Are we just determining who enters the Grand Prix and what their seating is? Uh, like, What's the larger narrative for the fights? Because that's one of the, the struggles that the UFC has from time to time is trying to create an ongoing narrative that makes sense to people and that encourages you to keep tuning in every week, basically. And one of those that has been used in the past is these, this climb up the rankings to the title belt but i know what bishop davis is saying here is that the way we are awarding title shots and the way it's kind of working right now is the ufc looking around and saying what can we sell and so you're kind of undermining your own narrative if it does not feel like a climb up the ranks anymore it doesn't feel like hey here are the things you have to do to get a title shot like it's tough to tell somebody right now do the following things and you will get a title shot
0: yeah and that's a problem with methodology more than anything else uh and it's true that the uh the UFC title picture across the board has kind of gone crazy right now. In fact, I actually thought that the uh, unverified listener mail rant of the week in last weekend's uh, or last week's Breakfast of Champions brought up a, an interesting point. Basically, that it takes solid brass balls at this point for the UFC to set uh, at it's probably its most dominant champion right now, Demetrius Johnson, up with a fight against a person who wins a season of The Ultimate Fighter, because considering the current climate in the UFC. You are asking for it, as Tank Abbott would say. uh, (laughs) You
1: mean as Walter Fox would say. As Walter
0: Fox would say in the fine novel Bar Brawler by uh, David Tank Abbott. Uh, I don't know that, that it's necessarily a problem with the idea of title belts, though. It seems like, as you just explained it, a problem with how you go about awarding who gets a shot at those titles. Like We wouldn't necessarily have this problem if we weren't scrambling to throw Michael Bisping into a middleweight title shot. We wouldn't necessarily have this problem... Uh, if we were, weren't, you know, given Amanda Nunes a shot at the UFC or at the Bantamweight Championship at, at UFC 200 almost out of desperation. Which then won. Cause we didn't have, uh, we didn't have anyone else to give the title shots to. Yeah, they both won. That's the, that's the trouble, right? Now, now all of a sudden you got all these new champions in the UFC and not every single one of them seems like the best fighter in every weight class. So I guess I am totally open to the idea of having some other, uh, tentpole event, I guess you would say, with well, that like Bellator says that you could mark on your calendar every year where you're like, okay, well, here's where we're getting whatever this is. Uh, but I don't think that that replaces the idea of champions. Yeah. Or championships because I, I, like conventional wisdom has always dictated that the UFC sells more pay-per-views when it puts the championship belt on the poster, which is one of the reasons why they do have championships. And one of the reasons why when Chris Weidman gets injured, they don't just scrap the idea of the championship fight, right? They're selling units, of the pay-per-view based on people tuning in to watch a middleweight championship fight. So if you just did away with the belts, then I don't know how you fill that void unless you're unless you can make the qualifying uh, a process for whatever grand prix tournament or whatever else you're doing somehow carry the same weight which seems like a tall order to me
1: right well and you have to also factor in look how hard it is for the ufc to keep a fight card together just with injuries uh the usada era kind of kicking in a little bit and by kicking in i mean kicking people directly in the balls uh with the, some of these test failures out of nowhere so Imagine trying to keep a Grand Prix together through, like, three or four rounds. Right. That just seems impossible.
0: Well, we Yeah, we saw how impossible it was when uh, Strike Force just tried to do one, and albeit in the heavyweight division, which was just a farcical notion to begin with. But that one worked to out. to try to have a heavyweight tournament. Come <laughs>
1: that, on. that one worked out relatively well uh, when you consider that you ended up with Daniel Cormier versus Josh Barnett in the finals, and that felt like, okay, it's a hell of a fight, even though Cormier was not an original... Uh, member of the Grand Prix, not slated to participate, he was an alternate who got shuffled in there,
0: yeah, I mean, you still come away come away with a Grand Prix champion who was not even in the original draw, and if I'm not mistaken, not among the alternates, right, like didn't they do when they started the the tournament, they had the draw and then they had a couple of alternate bouts, and I don't think Daniel Cormier was in those bouts was he I thought he he fought Jeff Monson. And I believe that was an alternate bout, but it? I could be wrong. I don't think it was one of the first announced ones, though, because I remember... What, Shane Del
1: Rosario was one of the alternates. I know. I
0: picked Shane Del Rosario to win the Force Heavyweight Grand Prix when we were working at Cage Potato, and I kind of prided my, continue to pride myself on it because I picked him based on the notion that no one who was in the actual tournament would win the tournament. And I feel like if I had known Daniel Cormier was an alternate... He would have been the pick over Shane Del Rosario. So
1: basically your argument is that another one of these instances where you were wrong, but you feel like you were basically right?
0: Basically, my recollection of history is based on what I feel like I would have done okay. had I known.
1: See, now we don't even need to play Master Tweet what Theater because you're using happened. the same logic. What had happened was, Basically, I was right. Though yeah, I was, wrong.
0: I was right I right, was right up until the point when it turned out I was wrong. Yeah. What do we got next here? The next... Piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Mike Morgan, who writes, I find it surprising that the CME is okay with Bisping Henderson. You guys have been calling for him to retire for over a year. Have we? And now we, he gets to jump the line because of some stupid feud. Unpopular opinion. Can we get back to watching the best fight the best? Uh, so this, this, no, we cannot. This question at least partially related to the Bishop Davis question, yes. the first question. It's because we have this now, we believe. Has this been confirmed that they're doing this, or yes. is this still just reports? Confirmed. So we've got it confirmed that Michael Bisping is going to defend that middleweight title that he surprisingly won from Luke Rockhold against surprising contender Dan Henderson, who says, as we talked about a couple weeks ago on the podcast, he's walking away from the sport win, lose, or draw, no matter what happens in this fight with Michael Bisping.
1: Well, and I feel like, first of all, I don't feel like we have really been out here saying, damn it, Dan Henderson needs to retire immediately. Uh, I mean...
0: Well, people hear what they want to hear. Okay. Um,
1: I think, you know, it's a good decision for him to say, win or lose, I'm walking away, because that definitely helped him get this title shot, I think. Uh, Whether he sticks to it is going to be interesting to see, especially if he wins. But I, I think one of the reasons that I'm okay with it is because of some of the stuff referenced in that first question by Bishop Davis. I feel like I've kind of given up.
0: Well, yeah, we are already down the rabbit hole, right? Right. We're dealing, we're trying to figure out to even be okay with the idea of this Dan Henderson title shot. You have to understand the context that we are already talking about a first title defense for Michael Bisping, right? (laughs) Like if we had just rolled out of a hot, 185 pound title fight between Luke Rockhold and Chris Weidman, where Rockhold retained his title by the skin of his teeth in a five round war. I don't think we would be sitting here on the show being like, yeah, you know what? Dan Henderson makes sense. I'm okay with that. We would be like, are you trying to get Danny Henderson murdered? But we're dealing with a different reality. Now we're, we're dealing with the bizarro reality where Michael Bisping is the UFC middleweight champion And I feel like at this point, you want to, you want to run him up against Henderson for all of the obvious reasons going back to their UFC 100, uh, knockout loss for Bisping? Fine. Do whatever. Let's just, let's just do it. I will, I will watch it. I will think it's fine. And then maybe at some point we can get back to what we thought was going to happen when Michael Bisping fought Luke Rockhold in the first place. And that was a funny diversion followed immediately by a return to normal business in the middleweight division. Right. Well, And I feel like one of the things
1: that uh, makes us feel okay about some of this stuff uh, is the same thing that – we talked about last week when we were talking about Tyrone Woodley looking out there and saying, okay, now that I'm champ, how do I cash in immediately? Where are my money fights? And we were saying, hey, look, you can't blame the guy, right? The guy's, he's got his mind on his money and his money on his mind. That's what any sensible person who has, who has been paying attention to the way things work in the UFC would do. He would not be looking at, all right, who's the most deserving contender for this title right now? He would be saying, how do I help move units uh, now that it benefits me to do so? And we were saying that... We can't blame it. We don't see how anybody can get mad unless they're one of the people who's being overlooked for for that opportunity, like Stephen Thompson. And I feel like it's the same thing here. We can get a little annoyed if we want, to varying degrees, depending on how committed we are to this idea of the best fighting the best at all times. Uh, but the only people who really get to get mad about it are guys like Jacare, Uh or guys like Luke Rockhold and Chris and guys like that, right. uh, who feel like this is delaying what is rightfully theirs Uh, and I could see why they'd feel that way but also I think everybody's just going to have to adjust to this is this is the world as it is in the UFC right now not as we'd like it to
0: be yeah it's this weird balancing act for at least me personally because in my heart of hearts I I'm a pure competition guy I would like to see the best fighters in the world fight the other best fighters in the world and for years and years I feel like that is like one of the core concepts that made the UFC uh, more marketable and more palatable than boxing, was that you got to see, like, it was very rare that you didn't have the two best fighters in the world in a particular division, and they would, would like, not end up fighting each other at some point. And a lot of that happened because the UFC was this strong, centralized force in mixed martial arts. Now, in the last few years because of a subtle matchmaking shift by the UFC and because of some not so subtle stuff like the rise of Conor McGregor and, and like the, uh, the rise of the Diaz brothers, even though that guys, those guys have been around for the long, for a long time. We've certainly seen them kind of come into their own uh, as far as relevance is concerned in the last few years. Uh, All of that, all of that started to change. So now, We have this, at least I personally have this, like, conflict, internal conflict. I have an internal conflict, Ben. Oh, no. And that internal conflict is that I do want to see the best fighters in the world fight the other best fighters in the world. But I also want to see the athletes get taken care of. And if the way that Tyron Woodley gets taken care of is that he goes out there and demands a fight against George St. Pierre, as kind of, like, ridiculous as that sounds, I can't in good conscience be against it because i would like to see tyron woodley make his money i think the difference
1: between the boxing analogy that you brought up is what what feels like it happens in boxing a lot is because the big time fighters just become promotions unto themselves and when everybody was saying for a long time we want to see floyd mayweather versus manny pacquiao and then floyd mayweather would say all right all right i'm gonna announce a new bout and then it would be against somebody that nobody was really that excited to see and everybody was saying wait a minute you, why aren't you doing the one we want because it seems like a tougher fight because it's tougher to get these guys to agree with because they're they're rich and they don't absolutely need to do it right now it's just going to make them more rich uh and so they were kind of picking easier opportunities for themselves to get paid and the the thing that happens in the ufc right now is it's not that it's not that the ufc or that the fighters are necessarily trying to pick up easier uh pickings for themselves it's that they are looking at what we tell them with our dollars that we want. So we are at least partially to blame here. Like they're not doing it because they they are refusing to give us what we want. They're doing it because they are actually looking at what we want. They're figuring it out. And then they're giving it to us. And we're saying like, oh, we wanted ourselves to be better. We wanted ourselves to be the kind of people who would want to see the best fight the best. But apparently we don't or not enough of us do. Uh, because otherwise, you know, it's fights like like Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz wouldn't be as huge as they are. And that is, I mean, it's it's kind of like the same thing that you see happening with like internet journalism where once we gain the ability to track every single click, we're like, all right. Lists of the cutest dogs. That replaces the need to have a reporter down at the courthouse all day figuring out what's going on down there. Uh, and it's not necessarily leading to anything that's good for us in the long term, but it is uh, a like more efficient model of giving us what we want and then making us sad when we figure out what it is that we actually want.
0: And the local politicians are running out the back door with just bags of money, throwing them in a truck and driving off.
1: It's big bags with dollar signs it's written on them.
0: Next question this week comes to us from Simon from Ottawa, Canada. He writes, with the Olympic Games in Rio currently distracting the public psyche, I'm reminded of Pankration, the combat sport of the ancient Olympic Games that combined striking and grappling. When I fantasize about the return of this event and its modern reincarnation, MMA, I have a very hard time imagining a format that could reliably determine world champions in a two week period. Due to the injury factor. Unless, could countries compete as teams somehow? Please discuss. Oh,
1: There's a fun idea. Kind of the IFL, but like a national version.
0: Yes. I'm just going to say screw national version. Let's just send the Iowa Razor Clause, or whatever they were called. You're shaking your head over there. Like, yeah. just You're disgusted at my lack of IFL retention right now.
1: I mean, you might be referring to the Quad Cities Silverbacks.
0: There were Razor Claws in the IFL. There were. Where where were they from?
1: San Jose. Now now I'm shaking my head at you.
0: Frank Shamrock's team. San Jose Razor Claws. That sounds right. Yeah,
1: it does. Sounds right.
0: Uh, can I just say again as a, uh, like an aside to this question? If you are waiting to see mixed martial arts in the Olympics, I think you have a better chance waiting for the rapture. To occur than than them like putting MMA in the Olympics.
1: Yeah. You know, we talked about this a little bit in the trading shots column uh, this weekend. Uh, And our argument was basically, I don't think we really would want it the way that it would actually look. Like there are a lot of barriers to making it happen, but I don't think we would even really want it. I think we just – we want the validation that comes with saying like, hey – Judo is in there, karate, or you know, karate is going to be added. and They've been trying to get that one in there for decades, and it's only being added in 2020. Like taekwondo, wrestling, and stuff. Why not MMA? Boxing is in there, um, but again, like I don't think like you're not going to get real pros to go in there in the Olympics and do it for national pride the way you can get basketball players to do it every four years because you know those guys are not taking the same risks every time they do their sport, and they're already rich. Uh, so and they get to stay on the big ass yacht if you're if they're the team USA. So whatever they they don't really care that much. You're not going to get a bunch. You're not going to go to like, uh, you know, Eddie Alvarez and be like, hey man, wouldn't it be awesome for you to do what you normally do, risk the brain damage and the opportunity to like sustain a career altering or even ending injury every single time you participate in your sport, but this time do it for free because you might get a medal and we, you might we might briefly pretend to care about you as a nation until we go back to not caring about you and want you to get a job at home Depot. Like they're not going to do that. So it would have to be amateurs. And we don't really have a good amateur system in MMA. Not like they do in boxing.
0: Any activity you can think of off the top of your head has a better chance of making it to the Olympics than mixed martial arts flip cup. Yep. Slack line. <laughs> okay. Yep. Uh hacky sack more hmm. likely.
1: I'm actually, like, if you told me hacky sack was in the Olympics and you sounded confident enough, I might believe it.
0: Can you imagine how good the Olympic hacky sackers would be?
1: Oh, the best. They'd be the best.
0: It would be mesmerizing to watch. Next question this week comes to us from Jennifer Figueroa. She writes, so Nick Diaz says he was drugged before the GSP fight. Oh, here we go. This sounds crazy. I I like when someone prefaces a sentence by saying that. This sounds crazy because you know there's a butt coming. You yeah, know the next clause is going to
1: be, and it is. We should stop talking
0: about it right now. This sounds crazy, but considering how much was on the line, maybe it could be true. What seems less plausible is that Nick Diaz would keep it to himself for three years. <laughs> good point. That's, yeah. Doesn't it seem more likely that Nick D Di- that the Nick Diaz we all know and love would announce it as soon as he entered the octagon? <laughs> I've been drugged, motherfuckers. He'd say <laughs> leaning over Joe. <laughs> oh, that's good. That is this is a really good email. He'd say leaning over Joe Rogan's broadcasting desk. What do you guys think? Could the allegations be true or is it just Nick being Nick?
1: Well done, Jennifer Figueroa. Yeah,
0: very good email. Uh, I lulled right there. Well, uh, if here's, he's, here's if the he's, here's
1: the question though. Uh, the the counterpoint to Jennifer Figueroa's uh, scenario here, where he leans over the broadcasting desk and announces he's been drugged, motherfuckers, is given the way Nick Diaz lives his life, as far as we know, would he even recognize right away that he had been drugged?
0: Or would he? Yeah, like if even if he'd noticed something strange happening with his realities, uh, <laughs> would he immediately jump to the conclusion that he'd been drugged? By someone else, or would he just be like, oh, man, that, you know, whatever it is I did three, four weeks ago, yeah. still hanging around in my system. Those, those
1: edibles will sneak up on you. You don't really know what, what's going to happen until it hits you all at once.
0: Now, the people who subscribed to the Breakfast of Champions newsletter were treated this past week to a bit of fan fiction. Yeah. Where, whereby, I mean, I don't want to do too many spoilers because someday we'll put it out in book form, obviously. Yeah. Uh, but it, it told some of the backstory as to what might have happened if nick diaz were to be drugged before the gsp fight and who would emerge as the bagman
1: yeah well i would say uh to paraphrase to paraphrase eli cash everybody knows that nick diaz was not drugged before the gsp fight what that story presupposes is maybe he was um but no i i agree that maybe the best reason to think that this is not has no basis in reality is the fact that he would have said something much, much sooner.
0: Yeah, that's a really solid point, And frankly, one I had not considered before reading this email. I However, also- at the same time, I
1: believe that Nick Diaz believes it. That's where I get hung up. Sure.
0: Yeah, absolutely. At this point, I mean, at some point, he retroactively became convinced that he was drugged the night of the fight. I was going to say, I feel like it's outlandish to think that George St. Pierre, Faraz Zahabi, Rory McDonald, Frankie cars and whoever else is in their crew would get together and come up with the idea to drug Nick. <laughs> for, for whatever reason, I feel like they would just like, I have a easier time believing that George would send Rory and Faraz to Nick's hotel room, club him with a billy club, roll him up in a rug and like put him on a boat to China rather than like drug him before the fight for whatever reason. Maybe that's just my own take on the sensibilities of, of our friends north of the border.
1: Well, you know what? Also, uh, do you remember when Rampage Jackson claimed that he was drugged before his pride uh, fight with uh, Sakuraba?
0: Vaguely, yes.
1: And it, the thing, you know, when he described, like, the symptoms that made him realize that he had been drugged, which is like he felt like there was a brick in his stomach, and you're like, or maybe you were nervous? Like, especially when you talk to, like, I talk to, you know, veteran pros who are like, yeah, I spend all day before the fight vomiting and pooping basically uh, just out of nerves and that's just how fight day is for me and that's always how it is I always feel weird and feel sick and whatever like how how would you be so certain that like the okay the only possible explanation for how I feel right now is that somebody surreptitiously drugged me It takes a certain kind of mind to jump to that conclusion.
0: The mind of Nick Diaz and Rampage Jackson. There you go. I'm starting to put together a psychological profile here. <laughs> anyway, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you guys already know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. And boy, if you have not signed up for it already, you missed the boat this week because I'm going to say it was the most beloved issue. Can we call it an issue? Sure. we can call Most it anything beloved we want. issue of the Breakfast of Champions of all time. Yeah. unilaterally praised and lauded. Not
1: necessarily a high bar to clear, but yeah.
0: That's probably a, a good point there. Yeah, but nothing but praise for the Breakfast of Champions this week. And I'll tell you, nobody unsubscribed there you this go. week. Even though it's easy, it's really easy to unsubscribe. They could.
1: They could do it almost just by thinking about it.
0: So basically, it's a no-lose situation. If you go to com and... Sign up for the Breakfast at Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss when we are not recording the podcast. And I'll tell you what, in a week where hashtag ain't shit going on, sometimes you get a little a little something extra.
1: Sometimes you, you do.
0: Some storytelling. Straight from the mind of Ben Folks.
1: Other times we just mail that shit in.
0: Yeah, that's that's also true. Anyway, for right now, we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, the dude, Yair Rodriguez, goes out there on Saturday night at Fight Night 92 from Salt Lake City, Utah, his first main event appearance in the Octagon, and he just flips all over that goddamn cage against Alex Caceres for pretty much five straight rounds. I mean, you could say the dude slowed down in the last couple, but... Shit, man, damn fight's 25 minutes long. You're not going to go out there whirling like a damn dervish the whole time.
1: He ended the fight in the 25th minute by like a front-flipping kick. So,
0: like a cartwheel kick.
1: Talk that shit now.
0: Yeah, ends up winning a a split decision, though it was kind of a bullshit split decision, over Alex uh, Caceres for his fifth UFC win in a row. Uh, And this seemed like the the big one for Yair Rodriguez to jump from the kind of dude who fights guys like Dan hooker and Charles Rosa on the undercard of UFC pay-per-views to perhaps being a main event attraction in the featherweight division. And frankly, a potentially important and lucrative main event attraction in the UFC, because we saw what happened a couple years back when the UFC tried to make Cain Velasquez, the, uh, the tip of the spear of its efforts to break into the Mexican fight market. That did not work. But now you have Yair Rodriguez, who it seems like he could be a better point man in a lot of different ways. Number one, he's actually from Mexico. There you go. So that makes him a, a, a pretty good fit.
1: Number two, he's fun as all hell to watch.
0: He is fun as all hell to watch. So Yair Rodriguez gets this win over Alice Caceres. I think it's an important one for him. Unless I miss my guess, he probably shows up as the co-main event on that November fight card in Mexico City, where Tony Ferguson is going to fight Rafael dos Anjos. But Ben, is this the fight for Yair Rodriguez that made you come away from this fight wondering if he actually has the fundamentals to back up the sizzling style, or are you just cool with the uh, with the with the flair of it all?
1: Well, the thing that makes me not that worried about a lack of fundamentals is we're still not super deep into his MMA career yet. There's still some room to grow. I mean, this is what his his officially his ninth professional fight. So I don't. If if you tell me that, hey, look, he's missing some stuff that's going to be exploited uh, when he gets higher up in the rankings. Okay, fine. But he's not there yet, and nobody it seems is really trying to rush him. It, like this this pairing seemed like. A smart move on the UFC's part, looking at, like, okay, what would be fun? What would be fun for these guys without, you know, completely destroying a hot prospect you have by putting him in there with somebody, and there are plenty of those guys around who are very well equipped to exploit the holes in his game? Um, we're not really doing that, so I'm not super concerned about that just yet. And I also think, though, he has one of those styles where people watch it and they say to themselves, okay, okay. This is fun, but it's also a little stupid. And eventually somebody is going to come along and you're going to spin uh, right into getting your ass kicked. Uh, and yet it keeps not happening yet. Uh, and I mean, I'm not saying like you, you, he's not going to fight for the title in his next fight. But I still think that people don't necessarily give him enough credit because especially when you see him go out there and do it against Alex Caceres, like he is making that work against, you know, a, a dude who... Could beat you up if you come in there and you're not ready for
0: it. So I think this is one of those fights where you got to give him a little more credit. Quick, uh, quick props to Alex Caceres, by the way, uh, because he lost this fight, but like you said, this was an incredibly fun fight. And he was both a willing and able dance partner in this for Yair Rodriguez. Those dudes just looked like they were having a movie fight, uh, for most of this thing, which turned out to be awesome. And I think that, like, You're right that we don't really need to worry about Yair Rodriguez quite yet. And I think that a lot of the relative brightness of his future depends on how the UFC handles him. And I think at this point, UFC matchmakers must know that what George St. Pierre did for Canada and Vitor Belfort in some ways did for Brazil and Conor McGregor did for Ireland, Yair Rodriguez might be able to do for Mexico. And so I think you you stand a pretty good chance of seeing him get handled in a way that Conor McGregor got handled when he first came in to the UFC. Uh, And he might pick up some advantageous matchups along the way until people think that he's really ready for an upper echelon opponent. He does have a very weird style, though. And like when he's not doing the spinning and the flipping, it almost makes me wonder if he is like a really talented young race car driver who is out there tearing around the track at 200 miles an hour, but does not have his license to actually drive (laughs) on the street. So he's like, yeah, man, I can do zero to, to 60 in three seconds, but I cannot parallel park.
1: Huh? Okay. And I cannot, interesting analogy.
0: And I cannot think of a better way to describe Yair Rodriguez's style other than saying it's all leg locks on the ground. Like when he is not, doing his spinning, striking attack, he will do a weird rolling takedown, and then he appears to, like, only want leg locks on the ground. Nothing else. Which is, like, the perfect complement to his bizarre stand-up style.
1: Well, I think one of the things about that stand-up style is that it it throws off people's timing in their counterattack because there's always, you know, or not always, but there's often one more extra... spin attack thrown in there at the end than you're expecting. And so everybody, they get, in the, and this I think happened to Alex Caceres a little bit, where he gets caught waiting too much. Uh, he he kind of gets a glimpse of that in the first round when uh, Yair Rodriguez is really fast-paced and, you know, there's just multiple spinning attacks in every single encounter. And so he gets kind of caught up thinking, like, all right, when's it going to be over? And so then it's going to be my turn. And I think that that kind of mesmerizes people a little bit to the point where they don't go on the attack often enough because they're they're not sure what this guy's going to do next. And I mean, I think if you if you pair it with the right fundamentals, I think that can be an effective style. And it's the kind of shit I think. Uh, Brent Brookhouse, uh, my my colleague at MMA Junkie, made a good point on uh, Twitter during this fight. Was it? It kind of validates some weird feeling in you because watching a fight like this makes you think, all right, maybe those Van Damme movies weren't so stupid after all. Maybe Lionheart really would go out there and whip some ass in the UFC. Uh,
0: no, I think we've like reached a very fascinating point in the evolution of this sport. I think we've talked about this before where you've got all these really young guys coming up now who uh, assumedly have done mixed martial arts their entire lives and, and – are athletic enough and have a well-rounded enough skill set that they are able to go out there and perform a lot of these techniques that were discounted early on in the history of, of MMA as, you know, unworkable, as things that just were not effective. And now you got guys like Rodriguez and Connor McGregor in some ways, uh, and Stephen Wonderboy Thompson that are kind of like the revenge of the karate man, like doing these weird, uh, very flashy striking techniques and having success with it.
1: Karate Man brews on the inside is what I learned from the Eddie Murphy film Trading Places. That's... Sure. I'm
0: no, I'll i go with you on that. I have no idea exactly what you mean. But... Did
1: this fight save the main card for you? Because I'll tell you, watching the prelims, there was some good stuff on the prelims, some good action, uh, and then we get to the main card uh, opening up with the uh, Marina Moroes versus Danielle Taylor fight in which almost nothing happened. Uh, and there were... There were a couple few stinkers along the way there, and it was a long, long journey to get after the six-fight main card. But then you finally get there, and you realize, like, okay, we still have, like, a potential five rounds, 25 minutes to go here. But then you're not even really upset about it because this one was so much fun to watch.
0: Yeah, you preempted my are you fucking kidding me a little bit. because oh, no. We might, I might as well just do it now, and that is then we need to quit it with these six-fight main cards, <laughs> man. This shit is brutal. Especially when you get a card like Fight Night 92, which is frankly one of those events that reminds you that the UFC is still doing like twice as many live fight cards as it probably needs to be. And like in recent days, it feels like we've all gotten used to that and have kind of stopped remarking on it and stopped talking about oversaturation and stuff like that. Uh, But this is one of those events that brought it all back for me. And, and you know, sometimes you luck out with a card like this that that looks like a sleeper on paper. And then it turns out to be super fun to watch. And sometimes you just get this absolute stinker that feels like it drags on and on for hours and hours. So are you fucking kidding me on that? Fucking kidding me. But I do think you're right that, like, as I was watching this, there were times when I thought to myself that I wasn't going to make it, man. That, I like, I'm old and oh, I no. have small children that are going to be up early. And, like... Uh, when you're, when you're, uh, sitting there watching, even when two dudes like Santiago Ponzanibio and Zach Cummings are having like a pretty fun little slugfest there, I'm sitting at home being like, I'm not going to make it. There's still three more fights. I still have to sit through Talos Latus and Chris Camosi, for God's sakes. I'm going to pass out in my chair like an old man, but I did make it. And then Yair Rodriguez and Alice Caseras come out there and they do kind of save this fight card in a lot of ways, at least to me. Like I would still not have rather sat through five fights before that of the main card but we still got a fun main event out of it
1: yeah Yeah. do i get to do my are you fucking kidding me now are we through that point you might as well you might as well do it well speaking of what was going on on the main card did you notice talus Leites goes out there and gets a third round rear naked choke submission on chris camozzi and it was mainly a grappling heavy jiu-jitsu heavy fight After he gets the submission, the Salt Lake City crowd actually boos him for for his his ground-heavy approach. There were boos as he finished the fight with a submission. To that, Chad, I must say, are you fucking kidding me that you are a hardcore enough MMA fan to come out for this fight card in Salt Lake City? You're one of like the 6,000 people who showed up for this thing and then you're going to boo some shit like that. I don't know what you're expecting to see, because I really would think that uh, anybody showing up for this one was hardcore enough to appreciate a good rear naked choke.
0: Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Before we end this round, I do want to remark on the nature of the featherweight division right now. We've talked about this in the past, kind of like the evolution of the featherweight division from a class that uh, for a long time kind of struggled to find a, a foothold with a wide audience. And then you have the arrival of Conor McGregor that kind of you know single-handedly transformed the division uh, into a very hot and competitive, competitive division. Now, I would argue, you probably have one of the brightest futures of any division in the UFC because you have dudes like Yair Rodriguez, who's uh, 23 years old, and you have dudes like Max Holloway, who's 24 years old, uh, and you have dudes like T-City, Brian Ortega.
1: I know that's your guy. Who's
0: in his early 20s. And you have uh, du Ho Choi, who's in his early 20s. And you have Miss Misrod Bektik, uh, who's in his early You're 20s. Misrod Bektik, okay. Uh, and he's, he's returning from an injury. But, like, man, you got a lot of very, very talented, very, very young guys in this division. Uh, and the future is very bright at 145 pounds. Yes, it is. I think. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. Or round number one. We will be right back with round number two.
1: I don't know if you caught this, but after Taruto Ishihara goes out there, knocks out Horatio Gutierrez in the first round with the sharp left hand, drops him, and then puts him away with punches on the mat, then he's backstage. I caught this on Instagram, a video from ShareDog's Dave Mandel, where it's being explained to Ishihara, like, hey, this one is not for TV. This is, you know, a scrum interview, basically, for the the internet outlets. um, So you don't really have to watch your language. You can say what you want. And so he immediately leans in and says, Motherfucker! that's when I decided you know what you just became my guy teruto Ishihara goes out there looks looks pretty good in this fight you yeah. can see that you know he wants to go out there and brawl maybe a little too much uh, for uh long-term success in this division but in this fight it really works out for him because as soon as he sucks Horacio Gutierrez into that fight the guy runs straight into that left hand and the guy's got some power in that left hand
0: yeah, Teruto Ishihara, 25 years old. You could probably add him to that list of guys I was talking about at the end of round one, uh, for young guns of the featherweight division that make it seem like 145 pounds has a very bright future. We actually got an email from someone that just said, no cookie party for Horatio Gutierrez, which were we not going to do an entire round about, about the emergence of Teruto Ishihara, uh, we probably would have read that during listener mail because it was it was pretty funny.
1: However, one thing we do have to point out yes. about Horatio Gutierrez, uh-huh. the opponent here. Yeah. Uh at least according to SherDog, his record now stands at two and three. Okay. Right? He uh came into the UFC uh with a a disqualification loss, has lost both his UFC fights so far. Are we getting a little bit of the uh is is Taruto Ishihara gonna be a, a Japanese sage north cut, in other words. Is the UFC looking at him and saying, like, all right, We like the cut of this guy's jib. We're going to find him some people he can knock out.
0: Well, yeah, maybe. I mean, just like we were talking about Yair Rodriguez potentially being very important to the UFC pushing into uh, Mexico. You know, if you are the new owners of the UFC and you just laid out $4 billion for this, this product that you just bought, the only way you can even begin to justify that is if you have a bunch of plans for new markets and new revenue streams. Like, that's the only way. Uh, that that even starts to make sense. So like even though the UFC's plans for quote-unquote world fucking domination have uh, cooled off a little bit here in the last couple years, I think you're going to see that stuff heat up again because with WMG-IMG now uh, at the helm, there's just no other way for them to ever justify spending that much money on the UFC except to do stuff like pushing into China and establishing perhaps more You you know, more uh, frequent shows in Japan, more like a a more of a home base there, and that Japanese market is one that you'd think would be kind of a sleeping giant for MMA because MMA used to be super super popular there, at least the 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 Japanese incarnation of MMA, Uh, and, and now you know you have the Rise and Fight Federation and stuff like that, but it's certainly not at the level that it was during Pride's heyday.
1: And yeah, because Bruto can only fight so many yeah, times. Yeah, you here. Know,
0: Baruto, he's he's got that bed and breakfast he needs to run. <laughs> That's so right, got the just, tours. He can't just w- roll out of bed at the bed and breakfast and go down and fight Crow Cop every week. You got a
1: damn business to run. But
0: yeah, a dude like Baruto Ishihara, it could be very important to the idea of uh of like kind of setting up shop in Japan and and trying to turn that into a lucrative market again. Now, for those of us here in the states, though, Ben, I wanna I wanna bring this up. He's. You just said he's your guy, Taruto Ishihara, and I understand that. You and he seem to be on the same same wavelength on a lot of different things. I'm going to go ahead and say, though, this thing where he's constantly talking about his bitches, that is the new Verdum face. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. That's going to be the thing that Taruto Ishihara does every time he's on camera, and everybody else seemingly will love it, and I am already tired of it.
1: Okay. I kind of feel you there we could we could stand to pump the brakes a little bit on the bitches thing cuz it does it is one of those things where uh i can't remember you know somebody i think pointed out to me on twitter uh if tyron woodley were running the same gimmick do you think people would be as like enthusiastic about embracing it and that is a good point
0: right yeah no absolutely not i think people are giving uh ishihara kind of a pass right now because uh he's not that big of a deal yet he's an undercard finder like he obviously speaks english as a second language which i think is kind of a a mitigating factor like people are willing to extend him the benefit of the doubt as as like maybe he doesn't fully understand all of the ramifications of the stuff he's saying and like he's kind of establishing himself as the sort of fun loving uh, like comedy relief type guy. So I think for now people are willing to look at these antics and be like, okay, ha ha, very funny, Teruto. Uh, but I think if he gets bigger and starts to become a more of a of a capital G guy for the UFC, I think uh you probably will have somebody will maybe Dave Schaller, will have to pull him aside and use all the Japanese language classes he's been taking and explain to Teruto like, hey man, like we you gotta think of a different word maybe. <laughs> than the one you've been using over and over again already.
1: Or, you know, he, he shows up on Jimmy Kimmel talking about how he loves his bitches and the crowd goes wild and you look a fool. That's true. Perhaps, uh. Or maybe this becomes one of those things where like, uh, like the, the main character in the, the series Party Down where he, where he, you know, 10 years from now, everywhere he goes, people are like, say you love your bitches, man. And he's just like, oh God. I, I really wish I hadn't started this. And there is like, and a little bit of the enthusiasm for it among MMA fans. It does feel a little bit like you're in a high school and you're trying to teach the Russian exchange student to, to swear. And everybody thinks it's adorable and it's like a funny prank. Um, and yeah, there, there is, it does get to a point where that's going to feel not so cool anymore.
0: Yeah. I mean, if he gets to be a big enough star, maybe it becomes like the Ronda Rousey Sandy Hook tweet. Where, you know, she becomes a big superstar and, and very few of us sometimes sit around and mumble quietly to each other. Remember when she tweeted that thing about Sandy Hook? Like maybe it will be the same thing for, for Ishihara. Maybe it will be like, remember when he used to talk about his bitches all the time, made that t-shirt? I've still got one of those. still got one. So well, it was so,
1: okay. So maybe, maybe he transitions to talking about how the moon landing was fake. And, uh, or he just thinks that there are some important questions we need to ask about the moon landing. And then that could be his thing. Because I could actually get into that gimmick.
0: Yeah, no? I mean, you should always question authority. I think is what we all all learned from Ronda Rousey implying that the Sandy Hook shooting was a false flag operation. It's what we all learned, right, Ben? Yeah, something like that. Uh, so this guy Teruto Ishihara is now he's nine two and two overall. Uh, this is just his his third appearance in the UFC. He had the draw, split draw uh with Mizuto Hiroto, Hirota in his in his debut. Uh and then he's fought a couple of Horatio Gutierrez type characters. So I think there is some evidence to suggest that uh that the UFC knows what it's doing and this is a guy that it would like to establish uh as a an up and comer in the Featherweight division. And at this point, two KO knockouts. Uh the the you know he fought uh Julian Arosa at UFC one ninety six and knocked him out thirty four seconds into the second round. So uh He's taking care of business in the cage, albeit maybe against a lower level of competition. And if he keeps doing that, it seems like he has a pretty bright future uh, at featherweight, uh, depending on which way the wind is going to blow on this thing.
1: Well, yeah. And he's at team alpha male now. So, you know at the right place putting in the work it seems to get better and to get where he needs to be it's not like he's you know hanging out in texas being trained by his dad or anything like oh wow shade (laughs) hashtag
0: shade being
1: thrown out here i'm just joking but you know when you hear like something like that like okay this guy is at a good camp especially for that weight class uh where he's going to get a lot of work with guys who have been there and guys who can really help him uh you know close whatever gaps might be in his game you know that's encouraging that makes you think like all right that guy's on the right path. That guy's taking it seriously.
0: Yeah, maybe uh, Cody Garbrandt just needs to pull him aside and hand him a pocket Bible and, and tell him, "Teruto, we we like to show respect for our females, female team members, our brothers and sisters. But hey, he, also, he also got out there and talked about how
1: it was his mom's birthday. And, uh, you know, happy birthday to his mom, who he loves. And, you know, everybody's mom was at some point somebody's bitches. Chad. wow
0: okay everybody's mom
1: most people's mom
0: at some point well i mean especially your mom I guess he's he's just a fighter with a heart of gold then and from one he white contains boy,
1: multitudes is what i'm saying he's one, a complicated man and nobody understands him but his bitches uh,
0: all right well that's that's good to know that is gonna do it for round number two of this week on the co-main event podcast we will be right back with round number three Well, then Conor McGregor got himself into some hot water with nearly the all the entire roster of world wrestling entertainment this past week. Uh, when during a conference call for his UFC 202 uh, rematch with with Nate Diaz uh, this week, he said the following. I assume this was in response to a question about whether or not he's ever thought about professional doing professional wrestling himself. I have thought about WWE, McGregor said on the call. Uh, for the most part, I think these guys are pussies, to be honest. They're messed up pussies, if you ask me. Fair play to Brock Lesnar. He got in and fought, but at the end of the day, he was juiced up to the fucking eyeballs. How can I respect that? The other guy, CM Punk, hasn't fought yet, so I don't know about him yet. Uh, and I'm reading that quote from the... Uh, Mike Bone of MMA Junkie, his story over on uh, RollingStone.com. So, Ben, I guess I will ask you to open up this round. That Conor McGregor made these comments, and then uh, he was fired upon on social media by everyone from Ric Flair to Sasha Banks on the uh, WWE roster. Who's the bigger jerk here? Conor McGregor for uh, calling out the, the WWE or wwe people for being so damn sensitive um i feel like
1: it's one of those situations where everybody thinks they're playing everybody else and it's everybody thinks they're the one playing and not getting played uh and it's it's tough to actually tell what people think they're getting out of this uh because you know conor mcgregor especially with his follow-up seemed to realize like okay i'll uh i'll poke at these guys a little bit They'll become enraged and fire back and basically bring their whole fan bases with them. Uh, and because I think it was also Mike Bone, I think, who pointed out, like, the that of all, like, in a few hours, all these WWE people were tweeting at Conor McGregor talking shit on him, and they had a combined total of like 14 million Twitter followers. And the kind of game Conor McGregor's playing that works really well for him, man, having these guys put his name in, in their their particular news feeds uh, and expose him to that broader audience. It kind of seems like, okay, his plan worked very well. And then for the WWE guys, they're going back to that. Remember when pro wrestlers used to be obligated to act like they were, were real tough guys and that it was totally legit and every once in a while somebody would go on a talk show and they would accuse them of being fake and they'd have to throw them in a chokehold or something? Uh, they're kind of playing that that old school game. Again, the the only people, it seems like, who are actually being totally played are the fans who are, like, seriously discussing who would win an actual fight between, like, Roman Reigns and Conor McGregor.
0: Yeah, so Conor McGregor, he later uh, went to his Twitter account to write, quote, I didn't mean no disrespect to WWE fans. What I meant to say was, I'd slap the head off your entire roster and twice on Sundays. So,
1: and there was a, a misplaced apostrophe in the there Sundays, is a by the way, just the so end. you know that it's at a fighter tweet
0: at the end of Sundays. Ah, uh, So at that point, yeah, I would agree with you. It seemed like he realized what he had tapped into in terms of like a, uh, uh, a news story there and headlines to make. I will say this, though, man, it seems like we in the MMA market are extremely fast to give Conor McGregor all the credit in the world for being a promotional genius. Like, I like Conor McGregor as much as the next guy. He's been a revelation on the mic. He's super articulate and talented. One of the best trash talkers we've ever seen. I don't... I mean, it's... uh, Maybe he, maybe he did all of this as some kind of like promotional master plan. Like I think people in the MMA market are really quick to give him credit for to be like, Oh, Connor's so smart. Look at him. Look what he's doing now. It's also po- possible he's just talking shit out of his ass.
1: Well, I think the first part was him just talking shit out of his ass. And then I think he realized, okay, here's an opportunity, especially with the way that tweet begins where he says like, Oh, sorry, I didn't mean any disrespect. I meant a lot of disrespect. Uh, that's where I think it's pretty clear that. He knows what's up. He's hip to the game there. What I I wonder is to what extent the professional wrestlers are hip to the same game or if they're just really legitimately getting mad.
0: It's weird though, man. And like, you know, there are a number of professional wrestlers that have legitimate athletic backgrounds. And I think that there are a number of professional wrestlers that could probably be successful in mixed martial arts if that was the the direction that they wanted to go after their like – uh amateur athletic careers were over. And obviously Brock Lesnar turned out to be one of those guys and came over and won the the UFC heavyweight title in, in fairly short order. So uh in this another MMA guy thing that we tend to do is like, as Conor McGregor here said, to think that all these professional wrestlers are pussies and none of them have any athletic ability. I don't think that's Really accurate. I will say though that professional wrestlers in general seem to have a very weird relationship with mixed martial arts. Uh, and it is in some ways a relationship that makes them appear as though they feel inferior to mixed martial arts. And I think that's because MMA in a lot of ways replaced or didn't replace, supplant professional wrestling completely, but, like, took over a lot of the pay-per-view market and a lot of the cultural market that used to be held by professional wrestlers, like you said, where back in the 80s, professional wrestlers would have to slap journalists and stuff when they uh, intimated that maybe the the wrestling was fake. Uh, and at that point, wrestlers were propped up as, like, the toughest toughest dudes around, and now clearly that uh, cultural capital has been taken over by MMA fighters. And so professional wrestlers have this weird relationship with mma where they seem to be enormous fans of it almost all the time unless like their own legitimacy is called into question and then they kind of they freak out in a way that seems to say more about them than it does about the other person who's who kind of poked them with the stick to begin with
1: well i think a lot of it and it varies depending on who we're talking about because you know they don't all come from the same background but a lot of professional wrestlers like you mentioned who do come from you know, solid athletic backgrounds. A lot of them you know, wrestled in college or something like that. Um, I think a lot of them tell themselves, like, you know, what I—if I would have gone into that, I would be awesome at it.
0: Right. Well, they—they uh, they don't tell themselves that. They say <laughs> that publicly, as yes. we've seen from guys like Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Undertaker in the past during Lesnar's heyday, when those guys were were hanging around the the cage and and people would ask them. Like, would you have done this if MMA was around when you came out of school? And they were like, Oh yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. The answer is always yes. 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 And I would have been great at it. Uh, and so I can understand how they might feel a little bit. I don't know. I don't want to say regret, but this feeling like where they probably wonder how they would have done in it. Uh, and the slightest suggestion that they did this instead of this other thing because they weren't tough enough or good enough to do the other thing, uh, instantly provokes a fury inside them and I couldn't understand why and you know professional wrestlers obviously it's not so much a sport as it is entertainment and theater the, the scripted outcomes and everything but those are tough dudes you've got to be a tough dude to do that stuff uh, and you've got to have you know some pride in your physical abilities to be able to go out and do that stuff all over the damn world all the time the way they do it so I can understand why they might overreact a little bit uh, when it comes to having a guy like Conor McGregor jump up and say some stuff to him. Uh, I just hope that the dudes who are playing to the marks are not allowing themselves to become the marks in a situation like this.
0: Yeah. Uh, and in a, lot of way, in a lot of instances, the guys who do come from legitimate athletic backgrounds – you know, a lot of them still do come from amateur wrestling. It seems like that the choice to go into professional wrestling at this point is not necessarily made out of like fear or cowardice. Like, you don't want to become a professional mixed martial arts fighter. Like, all of the dudes on the WWE roster who are on TV are making an ass load of money. And if you ever want to go on the internet and check out WWE salaries, you can go on there and scroll down and see why a professional wrestling career might be, uh, Uh, You know, preferable to a lot of people over over a mixed martial arts career. And I don't necessarily know it has a lot to do with the physicality, because even though, like you said, the action of professional wrestling is scripted, I think just like physically, the thing that they are doing all the time might be just as hard as being a mixed martial arts fighter, because like you are taking a beating out there and you are on the road in 330 days a year or whatever. Like that's just got to be physically exhausting and maybe even more physically exhausting in some instances.
1: Uh, You know, the thing that always struck me as the, the part where in trying to imagine the pro wrestler lifestyle where my mind has to say, you know what? Nope. Couldn't, couldn't even consider it is traveling so much, Getting off a plane or whatever and going right to a gym. You ever tried to to like fly somewhere and then tell yourself like I'm gonna get a workout in when I land? Never. I've never done it once in my life. I've I've packed the shoes and the workout shorts with the best of intentions. Never done it. Can't pull it off.
0: Yeah, for me it's the list of of guys that get their necks fused. Okay. All the vertebrae in their necks. Like that's just kind of a deal breaker. Let's say on Chad, top of all of the other physical requirements that I could not meet. Well, <laughs> let's say
1: that I were a NCAA, not wrestling champion, let's say runner-up, to keep it a little more realistic. You know, I got got an impressive physique. I feel like I'm a good athlete. Maybe I could get with a, a serious camp, start learning the striking game, go into MMA, work my way up the ranks. Or I could go into some kind of pro wrestling development program, take my chances there. What do you tell me to do?
0: What was your major? Were you like an engineering major or anything Sociology. like that? Sociology. You weren't like in petroleum? And I don't know what it is. Patrulian I still don't know what it is. Because I would tell you to just get a, a job if you had a a major of any of any you know substance. But apparently you did not. Nope. That's a tough question, man. Like uh, I mean, like I said, I think that the guys that make it to the top level of WWE probably make more money than like your average UFC fighter. But they are also taking a tremendous beating on their bodies and they are uh, traveling the world at all times. And, and, you know, a lot of the health risks are probably the same. Uh, I would probably tell you to try to be a WWE wrestler. But I would also tell you, like, you're probably physically going to get really screwed up no matter which way you go.
1: Thanks. That's very encouraging.
0: So petroleum engineering, is that, <laughs> yeah. is that part of your major? You know- could you do that? Did you study stocks at all?
1: Yeah. Did you become a businessman? I minored in stocks. Thank you.
0: Good. Good. That's good to know. Uh, Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. Uh, We will be back next week. Oh, we didn't even do Just Saying Stuff. We did not do Um, Just Saying Stuff. See, I was already thinking about all the emails people are going to send us about me saying that professional wrestling is probably as hard as MMA fighting. This is going to be fun. I already can feel them coming. Yeah. They're they're in the wires right now, (laughs) headed over. Uh, My just answer series of tubes.
1: Chad, I know that you were aware that our dude Cubby Swanson fought in the Fight Pass featured prelim on this one, which I know probably shocked some people when they looked at the main card and saw you know Trevor Smith and Santiago Ponzinibbio and your boy Cub Swanson is down there against Tatsuya Kawajiri in the Fight Pass featured prelim. Did you watch this fight? No. uh-uh. Well, at, at a certain point in this fight, Cub Swanson lands about as illegal a knee as you can possibly land on Kawajiri when he is down like basically on all fours. It's not even the thing where he has like one hand down or like you can't tell if his knee's coming up. Like he is down as hell. And Swanson lands a knee just right to the dome there. take a guess, do you think he lost a point? I'm gonna I'm gonna guess no. He was given a stern warning. Okay. Well at least it was stern. Yeah, I'm just saying, you go and you do something like that, and I'm not saying it was intentional on Cub Swanson's part, but he ends up winning the unanimous decision anyway. You at least you got to give the guy a break on appies or drink specials at Cubby Swanson's bar and grill from now on, because that's if you if you take a knee, an illegal knee to the dome from Cub Swanson, I'm making a rule right now. You drink for free. At happy hour for the rest of your life. But happy hour ends at 6 o'clock. Then you have to start paying. You're just saying. Just
0: saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, I know we were all saddened a week or two ago to learn that we had lost MMA's Al Capone when Nikita Krylov changed his nickname to The Miner. Even though The Miner, as we discussed on the show, is still a sweet nickname. Nikki Thrills even better. Yeah. I'm digging for light heavyweight gold. There you go. What would you think? Yeah. Getting better? Nope. (laughs) I'll keep working on it, though. But in the department of those of us who enjoy an MMA fighter with a mafia-themed nickname, this week I am just saying that we were all relieved at the arrival of a hot middleweight prospect, Joe Gelati, on this week's UFC Fight Night 92, who rolled in with the sweet-ass nickname Ben Capo. Joe Gelati as if he had his fucking mug shot on a bulletin board at the FBI office. little piece of yarn going to another person's photo. Yes, Capo Joe Gelati, who lost his fight to Trevor Smith, wily veteran Trevor Smith. And if I'm not mistaken, also appeared to have the word Omerta, the Italian word for the Mafia's Code of Silence, tattooed on one side of his chest. So, I guess I'm just saying, "Welcome to team Dundas, Capo Joe Gelati. <laughs> My question is
1: if you're going on with the nickname Capo and you have Omerta tattooed on your body, have you not kind of at least in spirit violated the omerita? I don't know that's not you're not exactly keeping your mouth shut
0: we would We need to ask some made guys about that because I don't know the, the full in, extent of all the rules. Okay,
1: I'll text some made guys right now,
0: yeah. So that's going to do it now, I guess, for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to look ahead to UFC 202 with Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz, the rematch. This is your last Saturday, I think, between now and October when there's not a uh, a UFC event on Saturday. So Get out there and enjoy it. Enjoy it. See some family. Write some letters. Whatever you do. Uh, But as for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out.
1: You know, we didn't even mention the nickname for heavyweight Chase Sherman the Vanilla Gorilla.
0: Oh, was that was that his nickname? That
1: That's one, I good, feel I, I feel pretty confident he did not come up with himself. No. Hard to imagine a guy being like, you know, what would be cool? I'll, I'll go by the Vanilla Gorilla. That's me.